You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right, if you guys will go ahead and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We started this passage in verses 11 through 13 a couple of weeks ago when we had the ordination last week. Um, But we stopped about halfway through because we were running out of time and we really hadn't even gotten to the last point, which I knew would be kind of lengthy. So kind of splitting it up into two passages. I'm going to try to not reteach the first part of the sermon again, but I do want to go through it just, just briefly to kind of set the context again so that we see that third and final point of how to remain faithful until Christ comes. So we'll look a little bit at what we talked about two weeks ago and then transition into the last half of that sermon uh, talking about what it means to have a, a purifying hope as we wait for Jesus to return. Let's pray once again together, and then we'll get started. God, we do praise you and thank you that you have called us out of darkness into light. You have saved us from our sin. And God, you have given us a hope of the return of Jesus Christ, where we know that when he does return, we will receive new glorified bodies that no longer struggle with sin. Will no longer be subjected to pain and suffering. God, Satan will ultimately be defeated. God, you will reward those that have followed you and you will rightly judge those who have not. And God, you'll usher us into eternity with you where we will enjoy pure fellowship with you and with other believers for eternity. And God, we look forward to that time. But God, we recognize that in light of that still being future, that we have responsibilities now. So God, I pray that as we look into your word today, that you would teach us through the Holy Spirit, God, that we would have a correct understanding of what you desire for us today as we long and wait for the return of Christ. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We'll start reading again in verse 6 just to set the context for verses 11 through 13. Up to this point, recently, we've been talking about how Paul had such a desire to return to the church at Thessalonica to continue discipleship, to continue teaching them and growing them in the, in the things of Christ. But he had been hindered by Satan. We, we saw at the end of chapter 2 that Satan had hindered him from being able to return. We don't know exactly what that means. We don't know what the hindrance was. But in some way, Satan had prevented Discipleship from occurring in the life of this church. And Paul identified it as satanic work. That Satan was wanting to hinder the gospel. And we spent some time looking at how Satan tries to hinder the gospel. That he wants to prevent people from even hearing the gospel. For those that do hear it, he wants to um, quench it as soon as possible. And then even for those of us that do accept the gospel, he wants to hinder our growth. He wants to uh, pervert our faith as much as he can to hinder the gospel from taking full root and full effect in our life. And so Paul says, Satan has hindered me from getting to you. Um, But that that wasn't going to stop Paul, and so he had sent Timothy, his uh, fellow co-worker in the gospel, as we said. Timothy had gone to uh, Thessalonica in place of Paul and had um, poured his life into these people and has returned with a good report. It says in verse 6, of chapter 3. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. We said that Paul highlights the report that Timothy brings that their faith is on track, their love is on track, but strikingly absent is their hope. We said all through this book and even through the New Testament, Paul consistently highlights faith, hope, and love. But hope is missing from this, this list here as he talks about their, uh, their faith, their love, and the report that Timothy brings. And we said most likely the word hope and any comment about hope is missing because Timothy has brought back questions about the return of Christ. And so Paul knows that he's going to address those questions in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And so he leaves that out of his commendation for them. It says in verse 8, For now we live... If you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? 
as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And we said that you would expect Paul here to appreciate or to expect accolades coming his way. That as this good report comes back, we would expect Paul to think that he's going to win church planter of the year or, or shepherd of the year and, and receive awards for the fact that these Thessalonians are growing so faithfully in the gospel. And yet Paul's response to this good report is he wants to thank God that God has been doing this in their life. So instead of him expecting the thanks, he's directing the thanks and the glory for what God has accomplished in this church. But despite all of the commendation for them, he says we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And so we we said that Paul recognizes that they have not arrived That they are not perfected yet. That their knowledge is still lacking. Their understanding of applying their knowledge to everyday life is still lacking. And, as we said, the word hope is left out here knowing that their understanding of the end times and the return of Christ is still lacking. So Paul says, despite all the good news that we've gotten from Timothy, we still want to come back to you because we know your faith is lacking. And I've been challenging you guys to self-evaluate where is your faith still lacking. If Paul were to come to you... What areas would he address in your life that he would consider uh, areas that are still lacking in your faith? Then we came to verse 11 a couple weeks ago. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. We, we highlighted there at the beginning, kind of on a side note, that once again Paul affirms the deity of Jesus. That the, the pronoun, plural, singular usage in the original Greek shows that God the Father and Jesus are one. And then later on as he's writing the Thessalonians, he actually flips the order and puts Jesus first and then God the Father second, showing how they're co-equal. It's a testimony and an attestment to the church's early belief that Jesus was God. That that didn't get added later on. That that wasn't something that later theologians re, kind of wrote back into the New Testament and tried to force it in there. That the early church believed from the very beginning that Jesus was God. That he, he was co-equal with God. That the Trinity, even though it's not worded that way in the New Testament, is clearly laid out in the New Testament. That God and Jesus are one. And then Paul gives them essentially three ways to remain faithful until Christ returns. He says, I want God to direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. The coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. We said the first way to remain faithful until he comes is to have a progressing faith. A progressing faith. And it's implied there when he says that he desires for God to direct Paul's way back to this church in Thessalonica because we said that his purpose for wanting to go back is to add to their faith. So Paul's saying in order for you guys to be what you need to be when Jesus returns, your faith needs to be progressing. That's why I'm wanting God to direct me back to you. And we said the language there again is implying that it's, he's, he's calling on God, asking God to, uh, to hinder what Satan is hindering. To basically work against Satan. That Satan has... We said the Greek word, torn up the road. He's hindered me from coming back to you. He's torn up the road. And this Greek word here, direct our way to you, the Greek word is essentially to repair a road, to put it back together, to pave the way, to smooth it out. And so Paul is saying, God, I need you. I need you to direct me back to these people because if not, Satan will continue to hinder the progressing of their faith. So progressing faith is necessary To remain faithful until Christ comes. We said that it takes divine power for this to happen. That God works to establish the word. We went to Matthew 12, 25 through 30. And I told you that that Jesus communicated to his disciples that a radical change in redemptive history was taking place. Because the the Pharisees and, and, and religious leaders were accusing Jesus of working for Satan. That he had just cast out demons and... Uh, the Pharisees were saying, yeah, we recognize something supernatural is going on here, but this comes from Satan, not from God. And Jesus kind of mocks them and he says, why would Satan cast out demons? Like, what good does that do? Why would he work against himself? 
And then Jesus says, look, here's what's really going on. I have, I have tied up Satan. I have bound Satan so that I can take everything out of his house. We said that really in the Garden of Eden that Satan had stolen away Adam and Eve and the descendants of mankind. That from Satan's perspective, I have captured God's most precious creation and it's now on my side. And God is communicating through Christ here that he says, God the Father is doing something different here. He sent me to to redeem people back to him. And Jesus says, "I, I have changed history right now. That up to this point, the nations have been blinded. People have been blinded. And we kind of talked about the fact that even if you look in the Old Testament, the amount of people that lived in the Old Testament and the amount of genuine conversions that seem to be presented in the Old Testament, it's not good. Like, it's not a good report. We talked about how the majority of national Israel was blinded. They, they rejected God. They were stiff-necked and rebellious. We talked about that there are a few instances where Gentiles come into the covenant people. We talked about Ruth, who was a Moabite, who came and, and said, Naomi, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. We talked about Rahab, how she was living there in Jericho, was destined to be destroyed with the other people there. And... Uh, due to her knowledge of God, she said, I want to be a part of you guys. So there are some incidences where, where people get saved. And there's others of prophets and, and other faithful people in the Old Testament. But by and large, the nations were blinded, it seems, in the Old Testament to the gospel. And Jesus says, that's changing now. That's changing now. Um, I'm taking everything back. And so we said that, that God ultimately establishes faith in others. He works against what Satan wants to do. And then we define faith, and it's still in your notes there. Faith is reliance and trust in the things that God has revealed to me. Or to kind of simplify that, it's trusting truth. Trusting truth. And we highlighted Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. This is Abraham, and his faith is being described for us. It says, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, that ultimately faith can be defined as trusting truth. And so we talked a couple of weeks ago that in order for our faith to progress, it requires that our knowledge of God grow, that we need that, that greater knowledge of God so that we have more to trust in. If faith is trusting truth, then it would make sense that to increase our faith, I need to increase the amount of truth that I can trust in. And so we talked about how that means we've got to be in the Word. We've got to know the Word. Our knowledge of God's Word has to increase so that we can then trust God more. But the more we get to know about God, the more we get to know about His plans and His purposes and how He works, the more we're going to put our faith and trust in Him. So our faith increases as we allow our knowledge to increase as well. So if there's areas that we're lacking in our faith, it's because we lack knowledge. 1 Peter 2, 2 is where we're told to desire or to crave milk so that we can grow up into salvation. We're to crave the word so that we can grow and progress in our salvation. The more I know, the more I can believe. And the more I believe, the more inclined I will be to obey. We said that obedience flows out of that knowledge. So I gave you some things to think about. Do I find that my knowledge of the word is growing? Do I find that my trust is increasing in his sovereignty? Do I find that my obedience is becoming more regular? That's some ways for you to determine if your faith is progressing. Are you coming to a deeper knowledge of who God is? Do you know more about God today than you did a year ago? It's crazy to think how fast a year goes by. I was talking with Tyson yesterday. A year ago, Lauren and I were at the church planning conference that you guys sent us to. That seems like just a couple of months ago that we were talking about the fact that you guys were going to do that for us and how grateful and thankful we are. It's been a year since we were there. Um, a, a year goes by so fast. Do you know more about God today, 365 days later, than you did a year ago? Are you progressing in your faith? Because the more knowledge you have about God, the more trust you can have in Him as well. Then we said number two, an abounding love. But not only does Paul want to come to, uh, to fill up or to add to what's lacking in their faith, he says we want to come so that the Lord can increase and abound in your love, that he can make you love more, essentially. 
We say that God works to change our love, that we go from loving the world to loving others. That a love for people is a true sign of faith, while a love for self is a true sign of unbelief. And we highlighted what Jesus says, that, that the world will know you're my disciples by the way you love each other. And then we talked about how people who love money show that their salvation is not genuine because it leads them away. They abandon their faith, according to 1 Timothy 6.10. And we, we kind of we wrapped it up by saying every act of sin can be traced to a lack of love. That every act of sin is really a lack of love. That when we commit a sin, when we violate God's law, we are choosing not to love appropriately. And we got that from Romans 13. That Paul kind of simplifies as far as explaining it. It's certainly not easy to do. But he simplifies how to obey the law in Romans 13, 8 through 10. He says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So sin ultimately is an attack on other people, it's an attack on God, which shows that we are, we are lacking in love. That we, we are not loving properly. We're not loving appropriately. So the way for us to, uh, to fulfill the law as Christians is to seek to love the way that God has called us to. And some ways for you to think through that. I asked you, know, have you, how are you spending time regularly with members of our church? Are you allowing yourself the opportunity to love more? And, you know, I kind of highlighted the fact that uh, Lauren and I loved each other very early on when we met at Sovereign at Snowbird. And, and that has progressed. Like the more we get to know each other, the more that we, we fall in love with each other. The more knowledge that we have of each other, the more we love about each other. And for us to increase in our love for each other as a church, it will require that we spend more and more time together. That doesn't mean that we schedule events and programs to make that happen. We've told you from day one that we're entrusting you guys to spend time with each other on your own. To work that out in your schedules. To demonstrate a love for each other by wanting to spend time with each other. But we're also called to love the lost. And I asked you the question, do you find yourself spending meaningful time with lost people? Not just spending time with lost people. Not just doing things that lost people do. But do you find yourself being intentional with your time with lost people? Do you find yourself seeking out people that are lost for the purpose of the gospel? These people that we're writing down on our note cards to be in prayer for. Are you finding yourself making specific time to be with them, to talk to them about the gospel. That's a demonstration that you're increasing and abounding in love. Not just for Christians, but also for non-Christians. And then we come to the third point today. Not only do we need a progressing faith to be faithful until he comes, not only do we need to be abounding in love, but we need what Paul refers to as a purifying hope. A purifying hope. Back in 1 Thessalonians 3. Paul prays that God would get in there so he can add to their faith. He prays that the Lord would increase and abound their love for one another and for all as we do for you. And then verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. It takes divine power as well for this to happen. God works to destroy our sin. God works to destroy our sin. And, and Paul's essentially saying, I want you to trust God more. I want you to love other people more. And I want sin to be steadily decreasing in your life. I want sin to be defeated in your life. I want you to be people that are known for being blameless and holy. People that are set apart for God's use as we're waiting for Jesus to return. And ultimately it's God who destroys sin in our life. It's not that that we simply man up and try to defeat sin on our own, that ultimately it's the work of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this in Philippians. We're told to work out our salvation, and it's God who actually works that in us. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why sin and calling yourself a Christian is inconsistent. Because Jesus came to destroy sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil. So when we continue to live in sin, we are resisting really the purpose of salvation in our life. That Jesus came to destroy it, to defeat it. And by us engaging in it, we're working against really what God says is his purpose. If you skip down to verse 4 of chapter 4. We find encouragement that this is possible because it says, Little children, you are from God and overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Sometimes we, we find ourselves justifying our sins, saying, Well, it's just too hard to, to be faithful in, in the world that we live in today. It's so much harder for, for young people and for singles to be pure in today's day and age when, when uh, sin and sex is so rampant and available. And there's some truth to that. I mean, you know, you think back into the 1800s, people didn't have internet. They didn't have movies like we have. Their exposure to sex and impurity is not the same as we have. But the encouragement is timeless here. The encouragement that John gives here is timeless. That he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Yes, Satan's schemes and devices have progressed as our technology has progressed for sure. But there was obviously rampant temptation for adultery and for sexual impurity during this time. I mean, it wasn't that it was non-existent. There was, there was plenty of sin going on during this time despite the lack of technology. But the timeless truth here is that he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. That we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who can defeat sin no matter what day and age we live in. That we can overcome sin, that we can fight sin and find victory over sin. That we don't have to give into it just because it's more tough on us today than maybe it was on people previously. That we still have the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit living inside of us that can lead us to victory. The key to living blameless and holiness is love. The key to blameless and holiness is love. We've already said that the way we fulfill the law is by loving properly. The key to that is, is loving Properly to, to love, and it leads us to being holy and blameless because we're fulfilling the law, as Paul says. And true love really comes from true belief in God. So they kind of work together. As our faith is progressing, it should lead to greater love for others. But they got to go hand in hand. That our obedience flows out of our faith in God. That the more we trust Him, that His ways are good, that they're not burdensome, that the laws that He calls us to obey, that the way that He kind of scripts what the Christian life should look like, that the more we believe that that's the best way to live, obviously that translates into how we live. If we believe it's the best way to live, then we're going to start living that way, and it leads us to living a holy and blameless life. We've already kind of talked about this morning. The purpose of our salvation is to make us obedient. The purpose of our salvation is to make us obedient. Ephesians 4, or Ephesians 1, verse 4 says, we'll start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Here's the same concept. Paul's, Paul's talking about it both in Ephesians and 1 Thessalonians. He says, you're going to be holy and blameless because this is why God saved you. Sometimes we say that, that God loved us just the way that we were. That, that when God saved us, he loved us despite all our inadequacies, despite all of our sin. He, he loved us just the way that we were. And there's some truth to that. That God did love us when we were sinners. Which is such encouragement that God loved us on our absolute worst day. That on your absolute worst day, when you were the greatest enemy of God, when you were in rebellion and sin and had nothing to offer, that's when it says that God loved you. And he demonstrated that love by sending Christ to die on the cross for you. But he didn't love you in such a way that he was content to leave you in that condition. God identified something and said, it's messed up right now, it's sinful right now, but I've got big plans. I've got big plans for my people. So I'm going to save them. Despite all their sin, because I love them, but I'm going to change them. I'm going to change them. It's kind of like the guy who, who can uh, make a living off identifying houses that are in poor condition, that seem to offer no value to other people, can look past all the, all the mess, identify it and say, you know what, I can fix that, and I can make a lot of money off of that. So it identifies the value 
but says, I'm not going to leave it in that condition by any means. I'm not going to buy this piece of junk and just leave it like it is. I'm going to change it and bring out the value that I see. I'm going to make it something unique and special. And God identifies us in our sin. And he says, I'm not going to leave you in that condition. I'm coming to destroy sin. I'm coming to recreate you. I'm coming to give you new and abundant life. I'm going to do that through the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you a new heart that obeys me. And I'm going to set apart a people that is completely separate from this world that's zealous for good works is what Scripture tells us. So God loved us in our sin, but he wasn't content to leave us in our sin. He wanted to change us. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Titus 2.11-14 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is why he brought salvation, is to train us to get rid of the old and put on the new, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. In First John or First John three eight, we already read as well that he came to destroy sin. A couple of weeks ago, I had you in discussion groups, and we were talking about the question: Can you get to heaven without good works? And our first inclination is to say, yes, absolutely. Like, good works don't get us to heaven. We've been raised on that. We know that. We know that truth in Scripture, and that's absolutely right. We can't get to heaven because of our good works. But Scripture also indicates that we can't get to heaven without good works either. That according to the book of Ephesians, we were saved to do good works. That we weren't just handed a card that says, you escape hell, go back and do whatever you want. That we were saved to renounce ungodliness. We were saved to be holy and blameless people. So yeah, we don't get to heaven by our good works, but we don't get to heaven without good works either. God works through us. God gives us good works through the Holy Spirit. He achieves these things in us because that's the reason that he saved us. He saved us for good works. Good works come after salvation. They come after salvation. This is where there's both perspectives given to us in Scripture that while my ultimate confidence before God rests in Christ's work, my claim to that confidence rests in His sanctifying work in me. Let me read that to you again so you get the truth there. While my ultimate confidence before God rests in Christ's work, my claim to that confidence rests in his sanctifying work in me. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That I've got this truth that says I will not be condemned when I stand before God one day. That I don't have to worry about it. That if I'm saved, I'm saved. My sin has been dealt with. But it's been poured out on the, on the cross. God's wrath poured out on the cross in the, in the work of Christ. But there is no fear that I have about standing before God. Look at Hebrews says, I can approach God confidently without fear because my sin has been dealt with. But I can come into his presence like the priest used to come into the Holy of Holies. But there was still an aspect of fear for him because he wasn't sure am I coming in appropriately. Because I'm going to offer a sacrifice here and I might die in the, in the presence of God's holiness. That's been removed. The veil's been torn down. We know that when Christ died on the cross, that veil was split in two so that we all have full access through salvation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 14 through 18. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. We know there's no condemnation because we don't bring sacrifices anymore. Christ has accomplished everything. He's put an end to any type of work that needs to be added. 
to our salvation. He was 100% perfect. Jesus obeyed the law, giving us the righteousness that we need. And he bore the wrath of God for our previous sins, our present sins, and our future sins. Which means that there is no condemnation for us. But our claim to that confidence rests in his sanctifying work in me. In Hebrews chapter 10, if you continue reading, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The author of Hebrews is praising these people for their, their, uh, their fruit and their good works that has flowed from their salvation. But in verse 45, 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And the author of Hebrews says, hey, don't stop. Don't stop being faithful because your faithfulness shows that your salvation is real. You need to endure until you're in the presence of Christ or until Christ comes back for you. It's your endurance that shows that you're really saved. 1 Peter 1, 13-16 Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I was wrestling with this as I was studying because in my mind I'm thinking, why does Paul call these people to be holy and blameless when we are considered holy and blameless before God? Like if we've been saved, we have the righteousness of Christ. We have no condemnation. So what is the motivation for being holy and blameless? And when you continue to look in Scripture, you begin to understand that the only way you can claim to have no condemnation, the only way that you can claim to have Christ's righteousness is if God is working in your life. If sin is decreasing in your life, then it shows that, yep, the Holy Spirit really lives inside of you. Because the purpose of salvation, the purpose of salvation was to make you obedient. That's the, that's the new covenant for us. In the Old Testament, there's prophecies that one day that the, the law would be written on our hearts, that a new spirit would be put inside of us. And we know that to be the Holy Spirit. That in the New Testament, we have radical, supernatural ability to fight sin. That the Holy Spirit stays with us every day. The Holy Spirit empowers us to fight sin, to work out our salvation. And so, yes, Scripture says, if you're truly a Christian, there is no condemnation. You are holy and blameless. But in order for you to really be able to claim, hey, that's true about me. That is absolutely true about me. I don't have any condemnation. I have nothing to fear to claim that. You have to have the Holy Spirit working in you. So practically being holy and blameless today shows that you will be holy and blameless because of Christ's work when you stand before God one day. It's not just outward conformity that Paul's calling for, but inward transformation. He, he gives us both aspects. He says, I want you to be blameless and holy. The blameless would be the outward aspect. That when people look at your life, they have a hard time finding something to, to throw up against you. And we know this is possible because of people like Daniel. Daniel wasn't perfect by any means. But when his haters tried to find some reason to, to get him in trouble, they couldn't find anything. He was considered blameless. He, he, he strived to be a, a God-fearing person, obeying what God had called him to do. And that translated in him to be a, a good person at work. A good person with lost people, like his interaction with people was flawless in a sense. Wasn't perfect, but the way he was living his life, he would be considered blameless. So there's that outward aspect, but also the inward aspect as well. We're not just called to do things. We're not just called to perform certain acts. God's interested in the motivation and the attitude behind it. So Paul says, I want you to be blameless, but I also want you to be holy. I want your good works to be generated from the right, the right motivation, the right attitude, the right perspective, the right desires. I don't want you to be like the Pharisees who are just doing things for their own commendation, for their own, um, their own pride. I want you to do it from the right perspective. So he says both outward and inward conformity is what he's after. 
God's the evaluator, not man about our good works, because God's the one who's interested in the heart. And again, we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about right desires, a desire to be holy, a desire to do what God wants us to do. And what I've been thinking about recently is do these words characterize me? And I want you to be challenged by that as well. Paul says, I want you to be people who are holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. Do those two words characterize who you are? Do they characterize your week? That you're weak. If we were looking for two words to describe your week, would holy and blameless be at the top of our list? Think about what, what happened last week. Would holy and blameless be the two words that, that, that God would use to describe your life? Did he characterize me? And again, we're not talking about was last week perfect. But I think what scripture would have us to see is are we struggling, training, and fighting for these two characteristics in our life. Let me show you what I mean. In 1 Corinthians 9. First Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And then in 1 Timothy 4. Verses 6 through 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Both passages talk about the, the responsibility to, strain, to, to train to struggle and to fight for something. As an athlete does certain things to prepare himself for a competition, we too have the responsibility to struggle and to fight and to train for godliness in our life, which to me has all kinds of implications. It has all kinds of implications because what it means is, as Paul says, I intentionally do things to keep my body under control. Which implies, Paul saying, if I don't do intentional things, then my body is out of control. And I, and I move back towards ungodliness and unwholesome behavior. If I don't seek to control this body that I'm still in, which is still sinful, it's still fleshly until Jesus returns. If I don't seek to control this, then I will have outbursts of anger and frustration. I will have a lack of love for others and I will seek to serve myself. I will try to satisfy my flesh and fulfill the simple desires that I have. If, if just left to itself, my body will strive to do these things. And he says, I have to keep it under control. I have to intentionally do things to keep it under control. Which means to me that it needs to challenge the way that we phrase how sin is going in our life. So if I say, yeah, you know, I really struggle with pride. I really struggle with pride. A lot of times people will say that. But a lot of times what they mean is, I'm prideful a lot. I'm prideful a lot. Because really, to say that you struggle with pride means that there's some things that you're intentionally doing to battle pride. But a lot of times we don't mean that. I struggle with, I struggle with lust in my life. That's a struggle for me. A lot of times what we mean is, I, I lust a lot in my life. That, that's something that, when I look at it, that's, that takes up a large part of my week. To struggle with lust means that I take intentional effort to fight it in my life. To protect my body from doing it. So let's make sure that we're clear when we talk about sin in our life and the interaction that we're having with it. Are we training for godliness? Are we struggling for godliness? Are we seeking to keep our body under control for godliness? Paul says, I want to present you holy and blameless when Jesus comes back. Almost like, hey, this is the day that we're all looking forward to. Let's get ready for it. The same way that an athlete would prepare for a competition... Let's get ready for this day. But once again, it's not so that you earn your salvation. 
So I was trying to think, like, how does this, like, how can I illustrate this? And, and the thing that I came up with is there was a time when I decided that I was marrying Lauren. There was a time that it came where I said, this is who I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. And then I initiated that with her by proposing to her and she accepted. And in the months leading up to our wedding, we prepared for this special day where our relationship came together. We made that covenant commitment in front of everybody. And we prepared for it. You know, we, we picked out what we were going to wear that day. You know, she picked out who was going to do her hair, who was going to do her makeup. We prepared the ceremony, everything that, that was going to be for that special day. The decision to love her for the rest of my life was made way before that day. Meaning that had her hair been bad that day, that doesn't change my love for her. So she wasn't, she didn't have this perspective of, I really got to get this right. It has to be the right dress. It has to be the right makeup, the right hair, or else he may reject me at the altar. No, it was, hey, he's chosen to love me, and we're going to have this special day together, so I'm going to get ready for it. And that's how I think the, the picture is in Scripture, that, that Christ has chosen to love us, that we're his bride in Scripture, and that there's a day coming where we're going to be together for eternity. And we're to prepare ourselves. We're to be holy and blameless on that day. We're to demonstrate to others that, hey, I'm living for that day. And when that day comes, the rest of my life really starts. But I'm not trying to earn Jesus' favor on that day by being holy and blameless. He's already adopted me into his family. He's already demonstrated his love for me. He's already committed to me. But I can still prepare for that day by being holy and blameless in the same way that a bride prepares for her groom. Even though he's already chosen to love her. Paul says, I want you guys to be ready for that special day. A day that God has already committed to love you for eternity. But are we struggling and fighting to be holy and blameless today? Which led me to, to write down in my notes, we should expect and anticipate that Satan will strive for the opposite. Satan's going to strive for the opposite. If, if God's purpose, and, and this is clear in scripture, whenever God says this is my purpose, Satan has the opposite purpose. If God wants to do this, then Satan wants to do the opposite. may not have even really been what Satan wanted to do, but the fact that God wants to do this, now I want to do this. God wants to establish the Thessalonians in their faith. Paul wants to establish the Thessalonians in their faith. Satan hinders Paul from coming to Thessalonica. He works against God's purposes. Now, he's not successful. He's not successful. Satan obviously submits to God's authority. God's completely in control. But Satan tries to work to defeat God's purposes. So we should expect that if God's purpose for us is to be holy and blameless, that our holiness and blamelessness would be attacked. By Satan. We should anticipate the fact that in your life, God wants you to be holy and blameless, so Satan wants the opposite. And he wants the opposite for this church. He wants the opposite for this church. And I think that we need to be intentional to protect ourselves from whatever it is that Satan would desire to do here to mess up us being holy and blameless. And, and perhaps one area that I've identified that is a way that Satan could wreck could wreck this church and could wreck our holiness and blamelessness is through sex. Our church is a unique dynamic here where the majority of our church is single. The majority of our people are single. And I know the temptations that come with sex, whether it's through pornography, whether it's through uh, impure sexual relationships with each other, we're about to go through a phase where if we're not careful, God can wreck this church with sex. Because many of you will get married over the next four, five, six years, which means you'll be in relationships, which means there will be the temptation to be impure in those relationships, to not be holy and blameless. There will be a temptation before you're in a relationship to be impure and unholy and unblameless through the aspect of lust. And, and just because we're married doesn't mean we're protected from that attack either. God, God wants us to be holy and blameless, and I think Satan wants the exact opposite. And we need to anticipate that Satan will seek to destroy our holiness and blamelessness with whatever it takes. We need to be on guard, and we need to struggle and fight and train. Which is why discipleship is so critical in this church. That we are holding each other accountable. That we're helping each other fight sin. That we're not trying to do this on our own. Meaning we don't just come here on Sundays and then leave and go do whatever we do during the week and then come back together on Sunday. That in order for us to resist what Satan is trying to do, it, it, it involves us banding together, fighting sin, submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit. 
The comfort to us is that Satan won't be successful. This will happen. You will be holy and blameless if you're truly a Christian. It's certain through God's faithfulness. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, we get the encouragement to us that God will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Satan never thwarts God's plans. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. God doesn't call people to salvation and then lose the battle. He doesn't try to redeem a people that sell us for good works and then come up unsuccessful. When he calls people to salvation, he gets what he wants. He gets what he wants. He, he, he takes it. He, he takes us from Satan. He takes us into his family and he radically changes us. So there's the comfort there that God will accomplish what he desires. He will make us holy and blameless. Philippians 1, 6, he starts the work, he finishes the work. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 9. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Our salvation doesn't rest on our faithfulness, it rests on God's faithfulness. And he will be faithful to do what he set out to do. But, but that doesn't remove our responsibility. It's certain, our salvation is certain because of God's faithfulness, but it's contingent on persevering faith. It's contingent on persevering faith. Colossians 1, 21-23. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There's again God's purpose. And this will happen. You'll be presented holy and blameless if indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, become a minister. So all of a sudden you've got tension that comes back in there. Yes, absolutely, you will be holy and blameless if you're saved. You will be presented holy and blameless when Jesus comes back if, if you remain steadfast in your faith. If the Holy Spirit works through you. Because if you're not truly saved... You won't endure in your faith. You won't persevere in your faith. So that's why the whole book of Hebrews says, stay faithful, stay faithful, keep following Jesus, don't walk away from Jesus. Scripture never gives us the idea that someone can get saved, walk away from Jesus, and and regret becoming a Christian, and still have any hope of confidence for when Jesus returns. The book of Hebrews is all about us enduring in our faith, staying faithful until the day that Christ returns. Thankfully, it's God who keeps us persevering, according to Jude 24. That even as we say that we have to persevere, it's God who allows us the ability to persevere. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It's ultimately not Paul that presents the church at Thessalonica holy and blameless. It's ultimately not me that will present sovereign hope holy and blameless at the day of Jesus Christ. It's God who will present you blameless to himself. Jude 24. It's he. He who is able to keep you from stumbling. He who will present you blameless before the presence of himself. His own glory with great joy. So it's certain through God's faithfulness, it's contingent on persevering faith. We have to make it. We have to get there. But thanks be to God, we don't have to do it on our own. It's dependent on human agencies. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. So be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. And praise of God. Chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul writes to this church at Philippi. He says, you do this together. You do this together. You strive for holiness and blamelessness together. God uses us to do it in the lives of others. 
We pray for sanctification in others. We work for sanctification in others through discipleship. Then the implications for us. Am I becoming blameless in holiness? It's a fair question. We're told to be it, so let's ask ourselves if we are becoming these things. First, do I find God revealing to me his standards in his word? Am I being faithful? Going back again. Am I being faithful to put myself in the word so that I know what holy and blameless means? It's not open to interpretation. You don't get to choose what you think is holy and blameless. You don't get to choose what's right and wrong. God's word is very clear what is right and wrong. Are you putting yourself in the word to know God's standards? A couple weeks ago we looked at 2 Timothy 3.16. talks about what scripture is profitable for. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And we said ultimately what that says is that scripture tells us what is right, what is not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. Tells us what is right and what isn't right. Tells us what to do when we mess up to get back to being right. And then it tells us how to stay right. Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Secondly, do I find God's standards to be good rather than burdensome? Do I find myself confessing sin, recognizing that God's standards are not suggestions? They're not suggestions. Which means when we're exposed to our sin, do we confess it or do we fight it? And that happens in discipleship. One of the hardest things for a disciple to do to the disciplee is to identify sin in that person's life. To identify sin in that person's life and have to tell them because they haven't seen it themselves. It's so hard because you fight all the, the fears of coming across as self-righteous, coming across as better than the other person, coming across as perfect, coming across as I don't have any problems. But part of the discipleship relationship is us being able to help others who don't see their sin who are maybe ignorant to their sin, to recognize and see their sin. Because the fact is, the, the world doesn't identify the same standards as God does. The world doesn't see it that way. The world says, be with whoever you want to be with if you love them. God's word says, you be with a husband, or be with a man or a woman, depending on your sex. You be with someone who's a believer, not an unbeliever. You don't be yoked to ungodliness and, and darkness. The two don't mesh. If you're in the light, you can't be in darkness. God sets his standards through his words. Do we recognize those standards and do we confess sin when we see it? Are we becoming holy and blameless? Now, to kind of cap this and wrap it up, back in 1 Thessalonians 3. He wants to establish our hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. There's a, a lot of debate about who it is that Jesus is coming back with here in this passage. Now, some of the debate is um, maybe removed for us, but we're not forced to deal with it because the translators here go ahead and translate the word for us as saints. But the actual translation is holy ones. But when Jesus returns with his holy ones... And understanding this passage really leads us to understanding what time frame we're talking about here. Um, clearly, obviously, one answer here is that Jesus is returning with uh, saints that have died. First Thessalonians 4.14, uh, Jesus says, or God says that uh, when Jesus comes, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Christ, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So we know that when Jesus returns, he's coming with dead saints, people who have died who have gone to heaven to be with Christ, and when Jesus comes back, those people are coming with him, right? Um, anybody have any other ideas of, of what interpretation would, would fit into here as to why somebody would just debate this means saints? Anybody else have a holy one's um, interpretation that might would go here? Who else could Jesus be coming back with? Which translation do you have? Okay. And it says angels. And he says angels. And it just made me, it made me think that if this is a spiritual battle, then the battle is between Satan and demons. And Christ and his angels. Okay. Yeah, that's the other. You'll have that. You've got to go to the, the hard copy. Yeah. The, um, the translation can really be understood as either saints or angels, and I think just go ahead and say both. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, it's just, let's just say both. 
Like, there's no reason to really argue about it. I read, I probably look at, I don't know, 10 to 12 commentaries on Thessalonians when I'm studying. I'd say half and half. Half said saints, half said angels. Put them together, we'll say both. Because um, there's passages that talk about Jesus returning with angels. Matthew 13, 41. Uh, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So when Jesus comes, there will be angels with him. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Um, so angels come with Jesus when he comes back. Um, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. Verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Um, way too much paper, I think, was devoted to, to, to just trying to distinguish between these two in those commentaries. I think Jesus is coming back with both. I think we see both in Scripture, and maybe that's why originally Paul wrote Holy Ones, because he meant angels and saints. They're both coming back with Jesus. Um, this passage also naturally begins to make us wonder and question, which coming of Jesus are we talking about? Um, and this is where it gets a little muddy because eschatology is a confusing topic, it's a debated topic, and it's um, a topic that doesn't always find a lot of consistency in believers. Um, for us, we need to just try to understand, are we talking about the rapture here or the second coming? In case you're not familiar with those terms, the rapture would be the belief that Jesus comes back, takes his church, never actually touches down on earth. Which is why it's not called second coming, third coming. It's called a rapture because Jesus only comes halfway, takes the church with him, takes them back to heaven, wherever that is. And then after a time of tribulation and some other crazy things that happen, then he comes back at the second coming and kind of puts an end to history. Um, you can also understand this passage to be Jesus coming back and putting an end to history. And um, that's, how I, I, that's how I believe um, the passage is being presented. Couple of reasons, and, and this is again um, a debate, a debated issue that a lot of good people disagree on. So we're not really pushing for strong agreement in our church that you have to believe this way to to be accepted here by any means. You know, you got to believe the gospel to be to be here, probably to be to be welcomed here and to feel comfortable here. Unless you're an unbeliever, and then we'll just keep preaching the gospel to you until you see that it's good, until you see that you want to accept it. But eschatology, we're going to grow together in this until we figure it out. And, uh, boy, I'm really hoping that First Thessalonians 4 and 5 continue to take longer to get into because we're actually going to have to talk about some of this stuff, and it is going to be confusing. A couple of things you may want to jot down. People that believe in the rapture or the second coming, we agree on this. This is some agreement points. Jesus will come back to earth one day. Okay, People that believe in the rapture believe that Jesus is coming back to earth one day. People that believe the second coming only obviously believe that Jesus is coming back to earth one day. So there's agreement, a lot of agreement, even though there's disagreement, we can really cling to the things that we agree on. Secondly, there's going to be a resurrection. Believers and unbelievers, according to Daniel. Some resurrected to life, some resurrected to judgment. So there's a resurrection. We don't stay dead. We come back to life. Okay, that's a point of agreement. Third point of agreement, Satan will be defeated. Satan will be defeated. That's a great point of agreement. And lastly, there will be a final judgment. Meaning that some of us will go into eternity forever. Some of us will go into eternity in hell forever. Some of us will be with Christ. Others will not be. So those are major points of agreement in eschatology. And I think that those are the things that we really hold on to. That those are the things that we find unity in. Jesus is coming back. Scripture is clear. Um... There's going to be a resurrection. Scripture is clear. Satan is going to be defeated. Scripture is clear. We're going to be ushered into eternity, either with Christ or without Christ. Scripture is clear. 
Um, real quick, and we'll, and, we'll, and we'll be done with this. Some reasons that I don't right now, me personally, I don't see a rapture in Scripture. And I'll confess to you, I've still got a lot of studying to do in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. I have specifically limited a lot of my study to what commentators would call clear passages of Scripture. Meaning, 1 Thessalonians is a lot easier to understand than Revelation. Why? Because it's a letter from one person to another without all the apocalyptic, uh, allegorical, potentially type language. Meaning, we're not talking about dragons and beasts and, and multi-headed animals in 1 Thessalonians, which is you know, nice in, in, in what we're teaching through right now. And I have to explain to you what a multi-headed beast is, is, is meaning. Um, so I start with the clear passages of Scripture. And when I read clear passages of Scripture, I don't see two separate events. Meaning that when I look at verses that talk about Jesus coming back, I don't see authors trying to distinguish between second coming and rapture. They just talk about Jesus coming back. And and it would really seem to not make a whole lot of sense for the second coming to be talked about as a hope for us to wait on if we're not going to be here. Does that make sense? Like, why preach the second coming as a hope for the believer to be waiting on if the rapture happens first and I'm not here? Technically, I'm coming with the second coming. Does that make sense? Um, it also, and this is, this, this is something that I've learned most recently. Beyond people that formulate their eschatology from just like the Left Behind series, which is a supporter of the rapture perspective. People who genuinely hold to the rapture, from best I can understand, come from a dispensational perspective. And we're not going to really get into that because that's really confusing too. But essentially, there's dispensational and covenant perspective about how time gets laid out. We might talk about that more as we get into Thessalonians. The dispensational perspective, ultimately what you need to know for today, sees the church and Israel as distinctly different. Meaning that God has a national people that's his, and he also has a church that is his. And when the rapture comes... The rapture is only for people who have died during the church age. Meaning that only people who died in the church age are resurrected. Meaning that if you genuinely hold to a rapture, you're not supposed to believe that Abraham and Noah and people in the Old Testament come back to life. That they have to wait until the second coming. And and to me, that's when it gets really, like, what? Like, why do some of us come back to life and others of us don't? That'll be weird to be in heaven with Abraham and be kind of like, look what you get to get when the second coming happens. You don't get your new body yet, but I've got mine. Um, it gets really confusing. And, and, and it's based off of a, how you understand church in Israel. Are they now one God's people, or do they remain separate? Because rapture people believe that us, we spend uh, time in heaven, while Israel spends time on earth with Christ. That we're kind of separated, in a sense, from Christ. We'll probably talk about that more as we get into it. But just to kind of give you a a taste of what we're talking about and a teaser for this, I totally see this passage as about the second coming. Because to me in the New Testament, the New Testament always calls us to hope for Jesus coming back and putting an end to Satan and sin and death. And that only happens at the second coming. If the rapture happens, we leave, but sin and, and Satan and bad stuff continues to happen. And to me, the New Testament constantly points us to Jesus comes back, Satan gets defeated, bad people go away, we go into eternity. That's our hope. And so for me, I see this totally as a passage about the second coming. So what are we waiting on then? For us as Christians, I believe that the two hopes that we have really is that we'll die here and be with Christ. That if Christ doesn't come back, you will die at some point and you will have the joy, as Paul said, that to to live is great, but to die is to be with Christ. That that we don't go to sleep and wait for Jesus to come back, that we go and we're with Christ. Or we also have the hope of that Jesus comes back before we die. And that we look forward to that and we long for that. So application questions. What is my word intake level like? Am I being faithful to take in the word to myself? Am I growing in my knowledge of God? Am I growing in my knowledge of his will for my life? 
Is becoming holy and blameless a big enough priority in my life? Is this a priority that you're struggling, training, and fighting for? You train for an Olympic competition, it's a priority. You train for an athletic competition, it's a priority. Is being holy and blameless a priority? And then lastly, am I allowing the certainty of the future to enable me to be constantly faithful in the present? The certainty of the future that Jesus is coming back, is that impacting you in the way that it should to where you are preparing for that coming? I told you two weeks ago, I can't stand it when a teacher tells me, you might have a quiz tomorrow. Study because you might have a quiz. Tell me if I'm having a quiz or not. You tell me that we're having a quiz tomorrow, I'm going to prepare faithfully. I'm going to prepare faithfully for the quiz. You tell me we might have a quiz, and I'm going to be half-hearted about it. We don't have to wonder if Jesus might come back. We don't have to wonder if the future might look like this. We know with certainty that Jesus is coming back. He wants us to be holy and blameless when he does. We need to prepare accordingly. And if we die before Jesus does come back, we have the hope of looking forward to being with Christ and coming with him when he comes with his holy ones to redeem his people for all eternity. I'm going to close in prayer, and then we're going to sing about both aspects today in closing as we reflect on what Christ has done in our life, and because of that, what we have to hope for, being with Christ, whether through death or through the second coming when he returns for all eternity. Let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you that you have given us the word to shape and to mold our life. God, I'm so thankful that you loved me on my worst day when I was a sinner. When I was an enemy of you, you looked down and loved me and saved me, redeemed me, adopted me into your family through the work of Christ. His perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, giving me hope for eternal life with you. God, I'm so thankful that you didn't leave me in that sinful condition, that you came to destroy sin in my life. You came to make me holy and blameless practically for that special day when Jesus comes back. God, I pray that I would be faithful on a daily basis to submit to the Holy Spirit in my life. That I would struggle and train and fight against sin. And God, I pray the same thing for this church. That holiness and blamelessness would be a priority in our life together. That we would not just struggle with sin, meaning that we do sin regularly. But that we would really struggle in the sense of the true meaning of the word. That we would be fighting against it. We would take uh, extreme measures when necessary to battle sin in our life. And that we would seek help from others in doing that. God, we do anxiously long to be with Christ. Whether that's through death. Whether that's through the second coming. God, we praise you and thank you that the certainty of our future is guaranteed. That we will be with Christ. There's no condemnation for us. So God, I pray that we would not sorrow as those who have no hope. That we would identify death for a Christian as a positive thing as we are ushered into uh, the presence of you. And God, I pray that as we live on this earth, we would anxiously wait, looking forward to the day that Jesus returns. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.